evening, everybody. Thank you for joining us tonight. Welcome to our panel discussion on the assassination of Qasem Soleimani and Abu Mahdi al-Muhandes, national and regional consequences. My name is Gwonjit Hazmini, and I'm visiting fellow at the Middle East Center. I'm delighted to be chairing this very timely and topical discussion. So we've seen a very turbulent start into 2020 with the two murders roiling the Middle East and pushing Iran and, and the United States to the brink of war. President Trump's tweet, all is well, beginning with all is well after the retaliatory strikes, somewhat assuaged our fears. However, what we have now is a rapidly shifting geopolitical landscape that brings with it both challenges and opportunities. Tonight's distinguished panel will put the spotlight on some of the region's most contentious issues, including U.S. strategy toward Iran and the wider region, Iranian power projection and its national security paradigm, the ramifications for Iraqi politics and security, as well as the contours of popular mobilization and protests in both countries. So let's get started with some housekeeping points. The running order for the panel discussion is 10 minutes for each speaker. Um, after which we'll open the floor to questions. And um, so first, a, a reminder, please, to silence your mobile phones, your cell phones. Um, and also be advised that the talk is being recorded. If you would like to tweet about the event, the hashtag is LSE Middle East. The panelists need no introduction. Um, each are thought leaders in their own right. But today we have with us, um, in reverse order to the panel lineup, Toby Dodge who is Kuwait Professor and Director of the Kuwait Program at the LSE, the Middle East Center. He is also a Professor in the Department of International Relations. Toby currently serves as Iraq Research Director for the DFID-funded Conflict Research Program. From 2013 to 2018, Toby was Director of the Middle East Center. He has been visiting, researching, and writing about Iraq for over 20 years. And his main areas of his research include the comparative politics and historical sociology of the Middle East, the politics of intervention, the evolution of the Iraqi state, state society dynamics, and political identities in Iraq. We also have with us Dina Sfandiari, uh, who is director at Herminius and a fellow in the Middle East Department of the Century Foundation. Previously, she was International Security Program Research Fellow at the Harvard Kennedy uh, School's Belfast Center for Science and International Affairs. Prior to this, she worked at the Center for Science and Security Studies in the War Studies Department at King's College in London and in the Non-Proliferation and Disarmament Program of the International Institute for Strategic Studies in London. Dina is the author of Triple Axis, Iran's Relations with Russia and China, as well as Living on the Edge, Iran and the Practice of Nuclear Hedging. And last but not least, Patrick Porter, who is Professor of International Security and Strategy at the University of Birmingham. He is also Senior Associate Fellow at the Royal United Services Institute. His research interests are great power politics, US-UK foreign and defense policy, and the interaction of power and idea in the making of them. His book, Blunder, Britain's War in Iraq, was shortlisted for the British Army Military Book of the Year Prize in 2019. He has appeared as an expert witness before the Parliamentary Defense Select Committee, the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, and the Joint Committee on the National Security Strategy. So without keeping you waiting any longer, 
I will welcome Patrick Portes. I think we agreed that that was the lineup. Please, thank you. Well, thank you very much, uh, comrades and prize winners. Uh, Professor Dodge, uh, fellow panelists, I'm very grateful to be here. I'm reminded of a line from the film Munich when um, Palestine Liberation Organization and Mossad are trading um, military strikes, um, explosions on each other, and one of the Mossad agents says, you know, now we're talking to each other. There is a very dangerous conversation going on with missiles and assassinations going on at the moment. And one of the problems with international relations and social science is we like talking about big ideas and systematic patterns, etc. But the, the dangerousness of the moment is that just how, how easily an accident could happen here. Um, think about the last two Italian, uh, Iranian retaliations. Uh, missile strike uh, on a US base that doesn't kill anybody but leads to 11 personnel being evacuated in emergency to Germany with traumatic brain injuries and just overnight a mortar strike uh, on another base which hits the cafeteria, no one's killed. It wouldn't take much for there to be one fatality. And with one fatality, the whole rationale that, that Trump's assassination, his wet job, restored deterrence, is exploded, which immediately raises the pressure on the American president to respond maximally, and that's a word we're going to hear a lot tonight, uh, to make good on his threats where an, a, an, a further assassination would not even be enough, I think, in the hawkish demand for not just uh, escalation dominance, but for retribution. Uh, so there is a very dangerous dynamic here uh, where Iran, in trying to calibrate its, its reposts to the United States, gets something wrong. Every time there's a shot across the bow, I'm going to mix my metaphors here, every time there's a shot across the bow, it's also a dice roll. So I think we are not far away from this getting really bad. And the pressure to escalate on both sides in a situation where the president moves from assassination to a, to a full-scale attack on Iranian sites, whether in Iraq or Lebanon, or uh, even in Iran itself, or, and which raises further dangerous incentives for either side to start striking first, which then raises even further and darker incentives where if, you're, if the escalation is getting to that point, we then have to go after the nuclear program itself. And this is against a country, Iran, which is not simply a shooting gallery. A country of 80 million people has some of the most effective paramilitaries in the world, sophisticated air defence system and a very determined regime, uh, a very difficult target. So where does this come from? What's the background here? Um, maximum pressure is a, well, as much a theology, really, as a policy undertaken by Washington since 2015. Uh, where the United States has looked to, in fact, not to avoid a crisis, but I think to precipitate a crisis, to in, impose so much coercive uh, leverage over Iran that Iran either capitulates entirely and gives in to America's demands over its missile program, over its nuclear program, over its support for proxies, or it thoroughly and completely changes its behaviour. Either way, to Tehran, that looks like a surrender. Um, what we have and why, why, this, why we were brought here, there are a number of different theories. One theory, which has collapsed by the hour, is that um, the President of the United States authorised an assassination as a preemptive measure against an imminent threat. Well, even his own officials, in fact, even the President himself, have disowned that rationale. We're now hearing about restoring deterrence. 
The second theory, which is popular at the moment, um, especially amongst a certain kind of Washingtonian, is that this is, a, this is about Trump's chaos. This is a president who's off the leash, who's off the hook, uh, who can't be controlled. It's an impulsive move. But we also know that this was authorised in principle seven months ago. It had the active and enthusiastic support for a number of people who are close to power, the Secretary of Defence, the Secretary of State, the Chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, at least amongst them, and that in fact President Trump has um, been placed under cumulative maximum pressure of his own domestically from uh, hawkish senators in the GOP. And in, we're also told that he's especially sensitive to the coverage he's been getting, the negative media coverage for his perceived weakness over not retaliating enough to earlier Iranian provocations. So there's something actually much more serious going on here than a president who's just flying by the seat of his pants. There is, in fact, I want to argue, a militarist pressure on the president himself, a president who does not want an, an outright war with Iran, but who's frightened of looking weak and looking weak in the narrow militarist terms of the war party in Washington, D.C. This is, I think, reinforced by something that's been going on for decades now. And it's something that distinguishes this crisis from America's crises with North Korea, or even with Russia and China. And that is, there's something about Iran that American power figures take very personally. There's something about the ghost of Jimmy Carter. There's something about the fear of humiliation and Carter's perception that Carter failed to stand up to the Iranian menace. This was the era in which Donald Trump was formed. This strategy, I think, is demonstrably failing. Iran has increased the amount of uranium, enriched uranium it's going for. It hasn't given up. In fact, it's doubled down in its support for proxies, and it certainly hasn't abandoned its missile program. But there's something about maximum pressure which becomes unfalsifiable. If Iran cooperates, therefore it's working. You see, our coercion is making them bow. All they understand is strength. If Iran does not cooperate, as it is not, if Iran resists, therefore that's evidence of its pathological aggression and the need for even more coercion. Last point. Having been very critical about the Trump administration and about uh, those in, in charge, I also want to say something critical about some of the criticism, particularly from the Democrat side, about this assassination. I think that some of Trump's critics are part of the problem. If you think back to what the likes of Michael Bloomberg or Joe Biden said about the strike, they said, they said almost identical things in three parts. That Soleimani had blood on his hands, it was a very bad man who was a malignant actor in the region, but that's, this was an escalation that's very dangerous, um, but that we hope there's been good planning. Right? By the time you get to the end of that response, the recklessness of the act disappears, and what we instead get is a ritual affirmation of the evil of Soleimani, of the evil of Iran, and the need to get back to the true issue, which is not ideological, but technocratic. We need to be planning these things better, rather than revisiting the strategic fundamentals that got us here. And this is strangely married to a particularly um, unfortunate view of foreign policy, that foreign policy does not become the prudent pursuit of the national interest that involves compromise and the accommodation of different forces. Rather, foreign policy is, is seen, I think wrongly, as an instrument uh, of morality and of justice and of, of meeting out punishment to the wicked. Uh, and if, if you think that sounds like a good idea, speak to the families of those who were killed in that errant strike on a civilian plane and those who are going to come. I wrote a book about Britain's war in Iraq called Blunder. I have a terrible feeling there's going to have to be a sequel. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you very much.
Okay, thank you very much, Patrick. Um, we'll move on to Dina now. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, so I've been asked to look at the uh, Iran angle in all of this. Um, and one of the first things that I was asked right after the um, right after the assassination of Qasem Soleimani and the outpouring of uh, support in Iran um, for Qasem Soleimani was, hold on, there were demonstrations in Iran three months ago against this, uh, this government. Why are there millions, literally millions of Iranians out on the streets uh, right now? And the answer to that is um, no different than it would be for any other country. Uh, Iran has a nationalist streak like any other country. And when you have a foreign aggressor that comes and takes out one of your most senior and most popular officials, then the country's bound to come together and unify in the face of an external aggressor, which is exactly what happened. Now, that's not to say that Iranians absolutely adore Ghassan Soleimani or everything he represented. No, they have a lot of respect for him. He was popular in Iran because uh, he built a career on defending um, the Iranian territory, particularly against uh, ISIS um, when, when ISIS took over Iraq and Syria. And uh, he was the architect of the plan against ISIS and ensuring that ISIS didn't get too close to Iran. Um, and for that, yes, he was very popular in Iran. But uh, the rest of his activities in the region, his Iranian presence in Syria, in Iraq, in Lebanon, it wasn't always um, popular in Iran. And in fact, uh, at various times over the last couple of years, Iranians have come out and during their protests, they have chanted slogans to the effect of, you know, not Palestine, not Lebanon, bring the money back home. And that's been very much dependent on their economic situation at home. So there wasn't, it, the, the outpouring of support that we saw was very much a country coming together um, in the face of an external aggressor. Uh, it did not in any way uh, show that Iranians were, were you know, wholeheartedly behind the IRGC and what the IRGC was doing in the region. And we mustn't forget that the Iranian population is a very complex um, population and it's very possible that they are incredibly unhappy with their government uh, and yet are able to come together in a situation of national crisis the way that they did right after his assassination. Um, he was also very popular for a particular reason, um, and that reason is that he, was, he managed to, throughout his entire career, stay away from domestic politics in Iran. Um, and that's very important in a situation where Iranian domestic politics are pretty aggressive, uh, they're constantly fighting each other, Iranians are tired of, of um, the infighting uh, inside the country uh, within their elite. And for that reason, he seemed to be above the fray. Uh, and so again, he was very popular for that reason. Um, having said that, uh, the next question then is, okay, so he's now uh, been assassinated. What does that mean for Iran in the region? Well, I think that Qasem Soleimani has left big shoes to fill. It goes without saying. But the IRGC, the Quds Force in particular, is not a one-man show. Um, and uh, in fact, he was not alone. He was the face of Iranian activity in the region, but he was definitely not the only person involved in carrying out Iranian strategy in the region. Um, and so his replacement, Ghani, is perhaps uh, much well-known, uh, less well-known, uh, and definitely not as popular, uh, but he, is his, he was his right-hand man for the better part of a, a decade. Uh, he knows the system very well. 
He knows um, the system in the region very well, and he knows Iranian strategy in the region very well. Um, and so I think what the Iranian government is going to try to do is really highlight how continuity is going to be the, the name of the game in the next little while. Um, and appoint, the appointment of Fani was, was the first statement in that respect. Um, I do think that it's a, in one respect, it's a little bit of a shame because I also think that the death of Qasem Soleimani presents Iran with an opportunity. Um, Iran's presence in the region has, particularly over the last few months, been quite controversial. We've seen a series of protests that are still ongoing in Iraq and Lebanon, and while those protests very much have their own protesters, very much have their own grievances and their own issues dealing with their own corrupt governments, um, Iran, by virtue of uh, its links to either groups on the grounds or the governments there, is also guilty. And so protesters have been focusing some of their attention on, on Iran. And I think these protests have caught Tehran off guard, particularly the ones in Iraq, um, but also, also in Lebanon. And uh, they are trying to get their head around, okay, what next? Um, and this is the context in which Qasem Soleimani's assassination happened. So for Iran, given that Qasem was the face of their presence in the region, this could be a really good opportunity for them to say, okay, well, the visibility of our presence in the region has been a problem, um, and clearly our popularity and our influence has taken and will continue to take a beating in the region if we stay on the current track. Um, so perhaps we should be less visible. It's unlikely that they'll want to be less influential and want to you know, retract those tentacles, but at least have their presence be less visible. The problem is that a couple days after the assassination, we saw one of the commanders of the IRGC pose in front of, I think it was 16 flags representing the different non-state actors in the region, effectively linking um, the Iranian government to every one of those non-state actors. So I'm afraid Iran is not going to be able to seize on that opportunity. So what does this mean for the next few months and the next little while? Um, well, Iran has made its very public um, uh, statement when it immediately responded by attacking this uh, base in Iraq. Um, I think Iran also made it clear that it wanted to avoid uh, crossing that red line of targeting U.S. lives as much as it could um, by notifying the Iraqis um, so that they could then notify the Americans to take cover before the Iranian strike came. Um, and that shows that the Iranians, they want to make a statement, but they don't necessarily want to you know, make their way towards uh, conventional war with the U.S., not least of all because I think Iran knows that it would lose in an all-out war with the U.S. Um, so that's been done, and that the Iranians, um, it, was, it was a direct strike from Iran. So from Iran's perspective, the case for at least avenging Qasem Soleimani's death is closed. But Iran is not the only actor there, um, and Qasem Soleimani was not the only one assassinated. Uh, so I think that what we're likely to see in the next few months, after a brief pause, because I think everyone's a little frightened by um, what almost happened um, and what did happen, is a, probably uh, a resuming of the state of tensions that we've had for the last eight, eight or nine months, where um, the Iran, Iran and the U.S. have been targeting each other and their assets and their interests in the region. Um, Iran will do this through its proxies, 
uh, and will try to distance itself so it has a certain degree of deniability in what it's doing in the region. Um, but keep in mind that, of course, it wants that deniability, and yet its general came out and posed in front of those 16 flags of the different groups in the region. So um, it also wants everyone to know, and particularly wants America to know, that um, America might be working with the Iraqi army. They might be working with uh, official states in the region, but Iran has presence in the region through its non-state actors. Um, and so it, too, can uh, be a real pain uh, in America's backside. Thank you. Thank you, Tina. Now we have Toby. Great, thanks. Well, uh, let me start by thanking the Middle East Center for being kind enough to, to host this timely event. And let me pick up on a couple of themes that both Patrick and Dina have, have said. I think this, the, the shocking assassination of Qasem Soleimani on, on the second third of the evening of the second third of January um, was justified in terms of deterrence. Uh, the missile attack that killed uh, a U.S. contractor um, on, based on an Iraqi base on the 27th of December, the retaliatory uh, links against retaliatory strikes against Qatib Hezbollah uh, that killed uh, apparently 25 militia leaders at the end of December, and then that resulted in the siege of the U.S. Embassy. Now, if this was deterrence, and Patrick is quite right to be skeptical about this, then the, uh, the missile attacks on the U.S. Embassy, the fourth such missile attacks uh, in January, would put doubt to that. And these missile attacks, unlike the other three, actually hit the building, which is difficult to miss because it's absolutely huge. So although this hasn't um, done what it said on the tin, it hasn't set a price, um, a high enough price against attacks on US assets, it clearly runs a distinct danger of completely transforming Iraqi politics um, and in a very negative way. And I think to understand why this is, we need to look at a few things. Firstly, who uh, Abu Mahdi al-Mahandis was, probably one of the most powerful men in Iraq when he went to meet his maker, uh, then what the short-term consequences were, especially for US policy, and then um, more importantly, I think, the interaction between the assassination of Mohandas and Qasem Soleimani and the protest movement, the, the, almost certainly the most important political breakthrough in Iraqi politics since 2003 that's been going on uh, since the 1st of October 2019 and then the conclusion where, the, where Iraq might be going. So who was Abu Mahdi al-Mahandis? Well, firstly, he was a senior commander in the Hashd al-Shabi, the uh, group of militias that were brought together after the fall of Mosul to Daesh in 2014. He'd formed his own militia, Khatib Hezbollah, who have a fearsome reputation, who have no great public profile, and have done, a, it is alleged, a lot of the, um, uh, the more dastardly uh, murders and assassinations in Iraq since their formation, but I think much more importantly, he was a deputy chairman of the Hashid Commission, the group formed by the government to oversee how these militias worked, and he very successfully used the block transfers of cash from the Iraqi government to the militias of the Hashid Shabi, or the popular mobilization groupings, to, to bolster, to increase the size of those militias around with, uh, aligned with Iran, 
and drain money from those uh, militias aligned with the authorities in the Jaff. So he'd been clearly very careful in using state money to empower the militias that were aligned to him. But secondly, over the spring and summer of last year, he'd done something even more important, that he'd used the central security directorate of the Hashtashavi to go after what he labeled as rogue militias, militias that weren't aligned to him or weren't taking his orders, and lock up their leadership. So what he'd been driving forward was a centralization of this disparate group of militias into a coherent force with a coherent funding structure and a coherent chain of command in favor of the pro-Iranian militias. And I think that's incredibly powerful, incredibly important for where Iraqi politics is heading. Now, the immediate consequences of the assassination, I think we all know on the 5th of January, although the Iraqi parliament, the Council of Representatives, wasn't it apparently. There weren't enough uh, members sitting there. And although there had been a campaign of, of rather overt intimidation, telling people that if they turned up and voted against the vote, they'd be murdered. The vote was passed to expel American troops. Then on the 6th of January, Trump, President Trump, threatened to impose sanctions on Iraq if the US was forced to leave, but that didn't put the, American, the Iranian, Iraqis off. President Adel, uh, Prime Minister Adel Abdel-Mahdi, although acting, he'd already resigned, rang up. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and asked him to send a delegation to Baghdad to begin with uh, negotiating the withdrawal process. Now this, I think, is incredibly important, that a weak prime minister, probably the weakest prime minister since 2003, rings up the Secretary of State, Patrick was saying, was a driving force behind the assassination and demands they start negotiating and leave, uh, negotiating the pulling out of their remaining troops. Uh, then the United States starts hinting that it could place Iraq under sanctions. It gets an exemption on a quarterly basis from Iranian sanctions, allowing it to buy Iranian gas, which is central to power supply in Iraq. Fox News, uh, in an interview with Fox News, the president also mentioned unsubtly, as is his want, that Iraq has $35 billion deposited in U.S. banks. And then the Wall Street Journal reported uh, that it could mean that Iraq, the freezing of Iraq's bank account in the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. So you've got a lot of pressure being placed on the Iraqi government by the US. Jim Jeffries, the senior guy in the, in the American administration responsible for the policy against Daesh, said that any conversations with Iraq, so he said we will start negotiations with Iraq to withdraw our troops if they insist, but it's not only troops, it's our strategic relationship, our, our resupply and training of American forces, and our financial backing of Iraq. So clearly, the United States is setting a very high price. And why that's really important is that from the 1st of October onwards, as Dina has mentioned, there's been a mass movement against not only the corruption central to the post-2003 uh, political system, but also a mass movement that quickly gained ideological coherence around a key set of demands. And the demands were for a secular, equal citizenship. That this, these demands brought uh, repeatedly over a million people onto the streets of Iraq, the biggest demonstrations that Iraq has seen since 2003, lots of young people, 
school students, university students, protesters who feel they are under or unemployed, de demanding the transformation of Iraqi politics around a secular nationalism, a resignation of the key corrupt politicians that um, have staffed the state since 2003, a transformation of the electoral laws and new elections that would bring to power a group of politicians untainted with the failure of the post-2003 um, uh, regime. So that protest movement, I think, is probably the most important thing to happen in Iraq since regime change. It represents a commitment for reform by young people. It was widely supported, but it has been directly threatened by the assassination. Muqtad al-Sada, al uh, who had supported, albeit somewhat quixotically, the protest movement uh, after its beginnings in October 2019, organized a mass anti-US protest in Baghdad on the 24th of January. People were protesting against Western forces, but clearly uh, the militia groups, those against the, the other demonstrations, were using this upsurge of nationalism as a cover to suppress um, uh, the, the uh, secular nationalist demonstrations. Muqtad al-Sadr yesterday announced that he will declare the protest movements deviant, his words not mine, unless protesters follow 12 of his conditions. Among them, stop denouncing neighboring states, a code word for Iran, stop cutting roads, reopen schools, and so forth. If you look at what Sadr is demanding of the protest movement, it mirrors what the government and the militias were demanding of it. So in the wake of this assassination attempt, uh, in the midst of this powerful outpouring dissatisfaction and mobilization against the Iraqi government and its ruling elites, Sada has held this mass demonstration against the US presence and has used that momentum to try and uh, contain, if not repress, the demonstrations. And not only last night did we see a mortar or missile attack on the US embassy, we saw sustained, incredibly violent suppression of the protest movement. Well, in my last one or two minutes, one minute, thank you, where does that leave us? I think it leaves us in an incredibly precarious position. You could argue for the first time since regime change in 2003, you have an autonomous, indigenous, independent movement representing the, uh, the organic views of an Iraqi population long been used as a pawn by American power, by Iranian power, by regional power. It's standing up. Over 600 people have been murdered uh, in their demands for a change in the regime. In the midst of this, Trump, in a, what seems to be an act of instant gratification, murders a senior Iranian general, and that allows the powers of conservatism, the powers of corruption, the pro-Iranian militias to move against this movement, neuter it, and suppress it. I think that is the tragedy of the crass short-sightedness of the assassination of um, Mohandas and Soleimani. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you all for your fascinating insights. Now we'll uh, move on to the Q&A session. Um, I'd like to stress a few points. This is sure to be a stimulating and thought-provoking discussion, so um, there will be many questions. Um, I'd like to ask you to keep your comments, questions, statements, thoughts 
um, as brief as possible, and also to keep the comments as close to the panel themes as possible. Um, and also speakers kindly um, reply with concise answers. And also, please wait for the microphone so that we can have a clear recording. Um, but I will be taking full advantage of my uh, chairing privileges by asking the first question. Um, so I guess it could be to it could be either one of you, really. Um, I've curated my question to reflect perhaps what's on the minds of many of the at attendees. Um, my question is this, what would it take for the US and Iran to extricate themselves from this impasse? What's the bottom line, what's the baseline for renegotiate, not renegotiation, but just renewed contact? And I'm not talking about a grand bargain or rapprochement or even detente. I'm just talking about breaking out of this um, deadlock that we're in. Great question. So. Uh Finding a way where Trump, bringing along the Trumpists, could live with a version of the 2015 Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action deal, rebranded as a heroic Trump diplomatic breakthrough. Um, it's been known to happen. Uh, it wouldn't need to be very detailed, but um, at least restoring talks on the basis of bringing back elements of that but done in a way that it possibly could be consumed in the US. I'm not sure US's politics, in fact, would tolerate it, but that would be the most immediate thing. To, to be, while we're all here, it's the LSE and it's London and it's a rainy night, I would say actually the best way of extricating the West from this is to leave the Middle East. I think this, this, is, this is where embroilment for decades has led us. And before it fell into the hands of the superhawks, it had also led us to a very dangerous crisis situation between 2009 and 2014, and before then, the 2001 and the war on terror. Um, I'm not sure it's worth it. And what we're also seeing is the lack of the influence that a superpower presence is supposed to have. But that's, as it were, for the birds. So, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so there's two very important barriers to any kind of dialogue right now. The first is that you have individuals in this administration in the US that are ideologically anti-Iranian. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't matter what Iran does, even if every single official of the Islamic Republic showed up in the US and said, you know what, we give up, here we are, take our country, I can guarantee that you still wouldn't have the resolution of this crisis. Um, and I don't think Trump is one of them, actually, but I do think that the likes of Pompeo, uh, Tom Cotton, Rubio, these guys, they don't want to resolve this. They want to get rid of Iran. Okay. The second problem is a sequencing issue. Um, the Iranians do want some kind of dialogue with America, but put yourself in the shoes of Iranian officials in Tehran. They've agreed to a nuclear deal after over a decade of negotiations. They've then implemented said nuclear deal um, the U.S. pulls out, they then continue to implement the nuclear deal. They don't see any of the benefits from the deal. Um, and after a year of continuing to implement it, to give the Europeans a little bit of breathing space so that they can see something, anything, that makes it worth it for them to continue implementing it, they then make the decision, okay, it's time to scale down our implementation and uh, react to what has happened in the region. So from their perspective, They've been punished for
for implementing the nuclear deal, which, if you're sitting in Tehran, is absolutely nuts. And there are many, both in government and outside of government, who are just still today at a loss for why the hell are we here? Why are we even talking about this? And so for them, in order to be able to negotiate with the U.S., they're going to need something, some gift, some olive branch, something, so that they can then turn around domestically and say, okay, well, they made it worth it. Because otherwise, they will look like they're capitulating if they deal with the U.S. And that thing is some kind of sanctions relief. It doesn't matter what form it takes. I think they've given up on things like relief on oil. They just want anything, the smallest little sliver that they can take back home and say, okay, well, it's worth us engaging with the U.S., particularly because the thing that Trump wants the most right now, particularly, I think, in the, in the election year that we're in, is that photo op with an Iranian official, Trump shaking hands with President Rouhani or with an Iranian official. Well, he wants that, but he wants the process of dialogue with Iran to begin with that, whereas for Iran, that is, comes at such a high price that they want that to be at the end of the negotiation process when they're telling the world, okay, we've now negotiated on substance, and here's what we've agreed on. And that's why I don't think you're going to see dialogue anytime soon. Well, on that bleak note, <laughs> I open the floor to the uh, audience. Um, please do wait for the microphones, though. Um, over here, please, in the front, second row. Um, thank you. Good evening. If the assassination of Soleimani was a negative action which threatens to destabilize the region, I'd be interested in your opinions of if, to any extent, the accidental shooting down by the Iranian government of the Ukrainian uh, passenger jet rather perversely neutralized it, because you had this, this assassination, which obviously was wrong, and then you had this ghastly mistake on the other side. And my impression in, in the Western media is that it was almost as if the two things cancelled each other out and everybody was back at square one and everything then became very quiet. Uh, I would appreciate your, your views on this. Thank you. Um, so I, I think that it's, it's true that there is a perception that basically... Uh, Qasem Soleimani brought Iran together and then the downing of the plane uh, made everybody realize once again how terrible their government was and um, come back out and protest and, and focus their attentions again on their own government. Um, I think there is a degree of that. Uh, it, like I said, it's undeniable that the, that the fact that Qasem Soleimani was assassinated by a foreign power brought out feelings of nationalism, brought out Iranians, which I guess to a lot of people was surprising given that, like I said, two months ago or three months ago, there were massive protests throughout Iran. But for me, there are two different things. One is focused on a foreign aggressor, and one is focused on their own government. And like I said earlier, it, they're perfectly capable of hating their own government, but also hating America for what it's subjecting them to right now. Now, for the Iranian government, the assassination of Soleimani, other than being an opportunity in the region, was an opportunity for them domestically. It should have offered them a certain amount of breathing space um, and allowed them to put in place a number of measures or to at least focus, divert attention away from domestic discontent and um, the economic situation and have people focus on the US as an aggressor. Um, the problem is the shooting down of the plane. 
But I don't even think the problem is the shooting down of the plane itself. It was the way the government handled the crisis. The fact that different parts of the elite didn't know what was going on. I was at a, I was at a briefing um, by the ambassador here literally an hour and a half before uh, the Iranians came out and admitted that they had done it. And he was adamant that it wasn't them. Not only was he adamant, but he then gave out a list of reasons that sounded pretty plausible, to be honest, um, about how it couldn't have been them. So either he was an incredible liar, which you know I couldn't comment, or, um, or he didn't know, which I think is probably the most likely outcome. So I do think that there were parts of the government that didn't know what had happened, and those who did didn't want to deal with that crisis. And that's what upset Iranians, that they knew and that they couldn't own up to it and apologize. Had they done that on the first day that the plane had been shot down, I don't think it would have canceled out the, the benefits, if you can call it that, of the Soleimani assassination. I wonder whether we would um, have greater insight into all of this if we started calling it a war that is already underway. In the, in the region. Donald Trump said, um, President, I, mean, I, I know very little about Iran, so I, I'm very much building on, on what's been said, but from the point of view of the United States, Trump said, uh, made an extraordinary claim, having assassinated a very senior figure and official in a foreign government, which I regard as a major act of war, he said, we did this to stop a war, not to start one. There is this strange pathology going on here of doing very aggressive things, um, which are a direct attack on a nation state while calling it something else. Trump's not the only one to do this. This is a, a widespread euphemising of hostilities. Uh, so therefore, to, to look at the, the downing of the plane, as you say, I'm sure it may have had some of that effect, but we're very lucky no American citizens were on board. Because Donald Trump and the Trump administration and the American uh, kind of the ecosystem has sort of set a baseline here that whilst we can debate whether or not to retaliate against some of Iran's actions, if there's American blood, if there's American person, single, if it's a contractor or whatever, then that mandates um, a kinetic response. Mm -hmm. uh, so that very easily could have been the case. And while this kind of thing, while we're locked into this, where we're in a fog of war, where we have imperfect information, where decisions are being made uh, effectively on the fly or it, with imperfect information at, at a rush timetable, um, where there is uncertainty about what's to happen next. I mean, this, the very fact that this accident happened was done in the context of apprehension about further strikes coming in, right? It wasn't, it wasn't a, in a sense, a totally random accident. It was an accident in the context of hostilities. So that's the kind of situation we've set up here. So as well as reading our Thomas Schelling and thinking about escalation and dominance, we should be reading Clausewitz and, and the danger of doing this in a state of friction. Thank you. Thank you. Front, please. Hi. Um, has the assassination of Qasem Soleimani such a symbolic and operationally very uh, uh, important figure um, effectively closed the door of diplomacy, even if Trump's administration is gone uh, this year. Um, it will be very difficult, it seems to me, um, because of this highly symbolic uh, uh, nature of this, of this person, uh, for uh, um, Iranian establishment to uh, to move towards the comp diplomatic compromise? Sure. Um, 
So, uh, yes, you're absolutely right. The, the political cost of any Iranian official engaging with um, America right now would be, I mean, it's political suicide inside Iran. So it wouldn't make sense. The only thing that somewhat cancels that out is the dire situation that Iran faces right now. Um, and the prospect of maximum pressure continuing because it is continuing and it looks like the next things that America is contemplating right now is literally a, a, a sanctioning imports. If that's the case, that's effectively a blockade, which then, you know, Iran finds itself in a particularly difficult situation, even more so than it already is. So, yes, the political cost is really high. Um, but I do think that Iranians are slowly coming around to the idea that actually economically something is going to have to give at some point. And that actually took a while yeah. because Iran believed that it could weather the storm. It believed that its campaign of maximum resistance was going to be able to work at least until the end of the Trump administration, um, whether that was in, in a year or in, in five years' time. Uh, the other thing is actually that Let's say that Trump doesn't get reelected and you have a democratic administration. You find yourself in a difficult situation because the Iranians don't want to engage Democrats. Because last time they engaged Democrats, a Republican administration yeah. came along and tore up what the Democrats had signed. So from Iran's perspective, engaging with a democratic administration is a waste of time. So you actually find yourself in a situation where it makes more sense to engage with the Republicans, even though the Republicans are going to be the ones who are going to make this incredibly painful for you. I'm struck that, do you mind if I? Go ahead, I'm, I'm struck very much from what I know about this internally in Tehran, <laughs> that when the joint comprehensive plan was first being mooted, the Supreme Leader, I think, um, warned on similar lines that you, you can't trust this. I don't think you can, but you do it but it's on you if, if it fails, right? So it's kind of a distancing himself. But with this kind of warning, a bit like Stalin's warning to, to his heirs, the, the capitalists will drown you like mice, but you try, you try, <laughs> right? So if it's bad enough then, and then one of the perverse consequences, I think, is this probably has validated the view of the Iranian hardliners. Everything, the whole script, the whole demonology about the great Satan looks to have been fulfilled, even more fulfilled, as you say now. But one thing, thinking about the medium term and the long term here, one possible consequence of this is the likelihood that this action, in conjunction with a lot of other actions, will provoke further Russian-Chinese balancing against the United States. That could open up opportunities for Iran as well. I, don't, I know very little about the economic ties there, but they, the, China and the, Russia are not strangers to this region. And the more one of the consequences of doing this, it may not be that it, that, that it creates an all-out war between Iran and the United States, but it does give incentives to America's rivals who are cooperating in many. I mean, one of the news stories immediately after this was Russia and China were doing air exercises off Taiwan. So there could be a global multilateral, sort of multipolar response to this. They could then provide some relief. Gentleman over there in the, in the blue blazer, please. Um, my name is Hossein Archelabi. I'm uh, still uh, trying to focus on the regional consequences. There is something very important happened before the assassination, which took place in Iraq in October that Prof Professor Toby alluded to. Basically, that momentum created what we call, in a way, paradigm shift. 
a structure that is not acceptable for governing countries like Iraq. Now, obviously, with such big change, I would imagine Iran may not be happy. So um, America also may not be happy because the, the call for the dem demonstrators is uh, hands off Iraq by both the Americans as well as the Iranians. So keep that in mind. Now that momentum may have rippling effect on the regional, let's call it regional consequence. I'm curious to, f to ask you, what is the damage of the momentum of the protesters in Iraq to the, basically, the, uh, what America desires in the region or what Iran desires in the region? And therefore, the timing of the assassination of Qasim, could that be one of the tricks between the Iranians and the Americans to actually um, sabotage that continuity in the paradigm shift to maintain status quo to their dominance in the area. But I like to see the regional consequences, the effect of if, if uh, the assassination didn't happen, what would the region look like? And what the assassination without the demonstration, what that would look like, and the timing of the two. Okay, it's a fascinating question. I think if we, if we look at Tehran and Washington, uh, and we deal with Tehran first, of course what happened on the 1st of October onwards, I think the paradigm shift is a really good way of putting it. I think it, it shifted our understanding of, of Iraq, but I think it shifted Iraqis' understanding of themselves, that uh, a, a series of incohate uh, angers, grievances, began to rally around a social movement. Now, of course, the main, this poses, poses the main threat to the man who's already lost his job, though he hasn't give, quite given it up yet, the prime minister and the ruling elite. But, of course, that ruling elite is in power because they're deeply aligned and supported by the Iranians, and the Iranians, uh, for good and ill, have given them strategic advice and have cemented their uh, hegemony over Iraq. So this is a direct challenge to that, and that's what we've seen with the demonstration uh, run by Mukhtar al-Sadr, attempt to overcome that. Now, the Iranians, I suspect, and this is why Soleimani and Mohandas' departure is quite intriguing, Soleimani and Mohandas, although purveyors of violence, undoubtedly, also purveyors of strategy and constraint. And those that follow them, especially on the Iraqi side, aren't. So trying to find a replacement for Mohandas, uh, who can both control the militias but also impose upon them uh, the, 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 at least the tactical use of violence, I think, will be di difficult. So we could see greater levels of violence. So, so I, I think uh, Iran's strategy to exploit the death of Soleimani both domestically and in Iraq um, is unfolding, uh, but not cleanly. As Patrick's been hinting at, on the other side of the coin of your question is the administration in the United States. Now, uh, sadly, I'm old enough to remember a series of administrations and have worked 
in quite detail on the Bush administration, which I thought was the, the, the least coherent, the most ideologically driven, and had made the largest mistakes in my adulthood, at least. I'm not old enough quite to remember Vietnam. So, um, and then comes along the Trump administration. I think it is, it is difficult to overstate the incoherence of the Trump administration. Just look at the staff turnover, national security advisors, national security team, uh, Secretary of Defense, uh, Secretary of State. Now, this is a long-winded way of saying that if the Trump administration have a strategy beyond maximum pressure, i.e., if what's going on in Iraq registers in any policy-specific way, I'd be surprised. And if it did register in a policy-specific way, and they had the wit to realize that what's going on in Iraq would be in their long-term best interests, then they wouldn't have murdered Mandis and, and Soleimani on the night of the 2nd, 3rd of January. So that's the long-winded way of saying. And I do think, and this is my bias obviously, but uh, I think those assassinations will are far more important, influential in, in Iraq than any other country in the region, including Iran and Lebanon and Syria. I think if you look at the weight of Soleimani's profile, the, the, the networks, the time he invested, majority in Iraq, secondarily Syria and Lebanon to some extent. And I think his, his replacement, doesn't speak Arabic, has held the Afghan file, um, just doesn't have that capacity. And I think, ironically, that will lead to greater disorder because he, 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 he and Mohandas' replacement won't have the ability to control the ground as their predecessors did. Thank you. Thanks. Um, the lady up there in the red. Masumetofe from uh, LSE. Um, I think Qasem Soleimani's uh, killing has been um, a huge shock to the Iranian system, but especially uh, for the foreign policy or regional policy of Iran. Uh, we are all aware of that. But um, I think it, it would be responded with more of a revenge. And the uh, IRGC uh, top generals, as well as Hassan Nasrullah of Hezbollah, have been threatening that they will be retaliating uh, and they would be using new ways. This new ways is kind of uh, a little bit um, uh, of a question for me. And I wondered what you think are their options because we know their areas of operation are limited, Iraq, maybe Yemen, um, and the Persian Gulf. But um, I cannot think really what they could do other than what we've been witnessing them do in the past few years. But if they talk about new ways, what do you think are these new ways? Thank you. Do you know? Um, I think the number one new way will be cyber capabilities. Um, Iran has spent a lot of money developing its cyber capabilities, and it is actually the only thing that gives it access to U.S. soil. So it can't target the U.S. soil in any other way other than through its cyber capabilities. So that means affecting infrastructure, businesses, uh, things like that. So I think that is one of the new ways. Um, but I also think that uh, that's probably them hyping up their abilities a little bit more uh, than, than they should in the sense that their old ways of relying on proxies to carry out uh, what they need to be carried out in the region has proved very effective, particularly over the last six months. Uh, so I think that along with these, this new capability um, of 
cyber, I think that they're just going to resort to using their proxies to do more or less exactly what we've seen over the last six to eight months, um, targeting infrastructure in the region, including oil. Although um, I think that with the attack on Aramco, Iran displayed its capabilities in a, in a very, at least what it will judge as a very successful way. And so I would argue there's actually not much reason for them to, to target oil infrastructure in the region, but it's a useful tool that it has. And then, you know, targeting U.S. assets in, in Iraq and things like that, I think, are just tried and tested um, ways that have worked in the past and that will likely work in the future. I do think the one thing to watch is this um, American red lines, American lives red line that was set. Uh, it's been crossed once, and you could argue that the assassination of Soleimani was in response to that. Uh, the question is, does Iran have the... Um, willingness to cross it again, to impose a higher cost on the U.S., knowing that it could spiral out of control. Um, I guess we'll have to wait and see. So, um, speaking as a kind of classical realist, I don't know much about what's new, but I think there are some old things as well that are worth watching here as well. Um, it's not necessarily a question of what they will do, but when they'll do it. Uh, think back to the invasion of Iraq and what, Iraq, what Iran could do to US and other forces next door, degrade uh, explosive devices, which some of the US military and the government were aching to uh, exact revenge for, but they didn't dare because they had their hands full with the crisis in Iraq and didn't want to get into a dual conflict with um, insurgents in Iraq and the Iranian state. So there may come a time in the future, not now, maybe not even in five years, where the United States has its hands full and Iran has opportunities. The revenge does not have to be today or even tomorrow. Um, I'd also say that there's some basis to think that, provided um, Iran could carry its public opinion, that there is some long-term strategic logic for underreacting, not for not reacting, but think of some of the geopolitical benefits that have flowed here, right? I mean, I don't want to oversimplify the Iraqi case, the Iraqi sort of battleground, but the tilting of momentum and politics towards Iran geopolitically, that it becomes, in a sense, the favoured, not, not the favoured, the, the least hated empire in the country, or the one that has more of the balance of power. Um, the strengthening of the regime's hand um, in Tehran, relatively, and it's cover almost the international tolerance for um, uh, loosening some parts of the nuclear agreement. It's, it's adherence to the nuclear agreement. These are some of the benefits that have come. Um, it's some of the argument, and was this really worth it for Washington? But there may come a time when, even under a different US administration, even under the Democrats, when this will not be forgotten. Um, after all, the US is still talking about the hostage crisis uh, decades ago. Can I just add to that, actually? And one thing that I think we overlook um, is that everybody talks about Iran exacting revenge. But Iran isn't the only player here that's been affected. Um, Mohandas's death is significant, and it affects a lot of groups and people in Iraq, many of whom have come out and said, we will carry out our own revenge, so watch the space. Um, and Iran may have a hand in some of what they do, but they sure as hell don't control everything they do. So we also have to be wary of blaming Iran for everything and, and watch what it is that these groups and organizations and proxies in the region will be doing and think about whether Iran will have had a direct say in that or not. Great, thank you, Dina. Um, the gentleman there in the light blue shirt, please. Thank you. 
Hi. Uh, thank you very much indeed. Um, just a couple of questions. One, um, the outpouring of uh, Iranians after the assassination, did that take the Americans and the West by surprise? Um, did the U.S. feel that the assassination would favor um, the Iranians in terms of winning some support from them, but instead it actually backfired? Um, and my second question is, the, the, the first, first question was about re-engaging with the U.S. and what that would take. Um, regionally, where are we in terms of re-engaging with the Saudis and the, and the Emiratis? Um, have they been scared by what's happening, um, and where do we stand? Okay, good questions. Dina, would you like to? Sure. Uh, so I think the short of it, yes, is that yes, it took everybody by surprise. Uh, I would argue even the Iranian government was a little <laughs> bit surprised by the uh, outpouring of support um, after Soleimani's assassination. Um, but in the U.S., I think there may have been an element of surprise for those who are used to watching Iran and used to following Iran, um, even though they know the country well. Um, I would argue the Trump administration doesn't care. Um, whether there was outpouring of support or not, I'd, they don't see it necessarily as outpouring of support. Uh, firstly, they're convinced that there, there are Iranians, well, in fact, that most of Iran doesn't support their government, um, and that conviction drives the way that they look at the country. Um, and in fact, we saw a lot of reports coming out of the, the U.S. and statements being made by officials in the U.S. to the likes of, yeah, but these people were being bussed in, um, to express their support, which granted is something the Islamic Republic does, but bussing in six to seven million people, I mean, the sheer logistics of it, I think, is beyond what the Islamic Republic can, can achieve. Um, so I don't think that, I don't think they care. I don't think that it factors into the way they think about the aftermath of the assassination. Um, and I think that much like what was being said earlier, they think that the downing of the airliner has basically canceled that problem. Uh, so we're fine. In terms of regional um, engagement, I think if there is anything even remotely positive that we can take out of the maximum pressure campaign and anything, everything that's going on in the region is actually that it has frightened uh, the Gulf Arab states enough uh, to start to think about taking matters into their own hands and to be willing uh, to engage Iran. What's interesting is that I think that they're both still pushing the US to go stronger while also pushing the U.S. to pull back um, on, on its maximum pressure campaign on Iran. And their fear is pushing them to, to try to at least find ways, not to necessarily engage with Iran, but at least have channels of de-escalation. Um, and there is, a, there is a rumor, I don't, I don't know how much truth there is to it, although Iranian officials have confirmed to us that it is true, that um, Qasem Soleimani was in Iraq basically to start formalizing this engagement of the, uh, of the Saudis in particular, but also the other Gulf Arab states, so. Good evening, just a very quick question in regards to um, the elections in Iraq, which will play out in six months. Um, how do you think uh, the elections will play out? You have Al-Fatah and Sa'arun, would they potentially form a coalition? because now Sadr seems to be closer to, to, to those groups. And do you see a nationalist uh, party emerging from that as well? Thank you. 
Colin? Yeah, um, well, as far as I understand, the, the, the election date themselves is still up for grabs. Um, elite conversation seems to be agreeing that it has to be before the end of the year. October is mentioned. Uh, the electoral law went through Parliament or went through the Council of Representatives with remarkable speed. Um, which leaves me to ponder what effect it will have. So I would not actually... I know the protesters are pushing very much for a new electoral law, which is why it went through so quickly, and they want the United Nations to oversee any new elections, and they think they'll have a transformative effect. As your question indicates, I, I doubt it, to be frank. I think the, the dominant parties are dominant because they're entrenched within the state... Uh, they have grown very wealthy off their connections to the state. A lot of the Mahasasa uh, corruption is around personal greed, but it's also around um, party funding, and those are huge war chests that have been uh, bought, uh, built up. So if the electoral law could be married to a party political law, which would have a forensic accounting of where their money come from and, and put limits on it, then you could see... Uh, election being potentially transformative. If that doesn't happen, I have no sense it would. It's quite idealistic. Uh, the Iraqi state isn't strong enough to hold their own parties to account. Then I think the elections won't look very different. And also, let's also keep in mind that it, from the dizzying heights of 2005, election turnout has dropped to four, uh, allegedly 40%, but in places like Basra, much lower in 2018. So for people actually to turn out and vote, they'd have to have some hope that voting would change things, and I don't think it's just the electoral law that would deliver that. So if elections come this year without a, a kind of transformatory um, challenge to the dominant parties in elections, I think you'll get something very similar. Uh, an election campaign dominated by money, by money accrued to the existing parties. If not a low turnout, then a turnout that doesn't really matter much, and then into the same negotiative process we saw in 2005, 2010, 2014, 2018, and the same faces coming up. And I would just add that there may well be a new pr prime ministerial candidate in the next few days. And rather disappointingly, I suspect the names, the four names that are circulating in Baghdad at the moment are all very familiar. They're not core members of the elite, uh, but they are secondary or tertiary members of the elite. And I think that indicates that the elite isn't ready to vote for its own demise. Thank you. Um, over here, please, in the second row. Hi. Thank you all for your talks. My name's Leila, and I study here. Um, on the back of what you just said, Professor Dodge, um, I had a question about um, this kind of unfortunate dichotomy that's emerged that's kind of even strengthened between... Uh, the Iran, uh, Iran, the US, and Iraq stuck in the middle. Um, Iraq has obviously had a rocky history trying to uh, balance the two interests, and I think both, both powers have not taken well to that. Um, so to what extent do you think that recent events, even over the last nine months, have entrenched the necessity of taking a side within Iraq? And in that context, um, what room is there for a kind of realistic sovereignty? Because I know the protesters desire kind of fundamental changes, but within what's going on in international relations, what room do Iraqis have for some sovereignty? Great, thanks. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really 
important question, but one with, I think, a rather glum answer. Um, if you're in power in Iraq, um, you have gained that power in some form of alliance, either tacit or overt, with Iran. And, and we've seen... Wondering how, to, how rude or indiscreet to be, but we've seen that, say, with the Speaker of Parliament, who only became the Speaker of Parliament uh, because he aligned with, with Iran and, 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 and joined that side of the House, though his uh, alliances uh, are fluid and biddable. So I, I think to be unambiguously clear about it, uh, Iran is, is, is undoubtedly the dominant power in Iraq as far as the elite concerned. What's so fascinating about these demonstrations that it's not as far as a large section of especially the young population concerned. So to go back to the question before, it's about how that youth mobilization that has been so powerful and so remarkably sustained in the face of extended barbarity and violence can deliver change and can do it in a way that will have to, I suspect, be gradual uh, and doesn't challenge, and I, I, I struggle with that. If we, and especially after the assassination of Soleimani, but even before that, if we then try and pinpoint key members of the ruling elite that would see themselves as pro-US or, or trying to balance with Iran, their numbers are tiny. Um, and it's quite amusing that the, the Kurds, especially the KDP, position themselves as pro-US. But after the, refer the, the referendum and the negative consequences of the outcome, even the KDP had to reposition themselves more covertly than overtly in the Iranian camp in order to survive. So from that point of view, when I look at the panoply of uh, Iraqi ruling elite and I try and pinpoint those that are aligned or trying to balance, trying to minimize Iranian influence, there's a very small number, and their position is incredibly precarious after the 2nd, 3rd of December, made much more so, which is another reason why this U.S. instant gratification in the killing of uh, Soleimani was so ill thought out. So I think, yes, the demands of the demonstrators are to regain sovereignty, for Iraq to become a normal Westphalian state, as it were, if that were possible, to, to be able to control its territory and to be able, and its politicians to be primarily answerable to the Iraqi population. I think they're an incredibly long way away from that. And what's so annoying is they're even further away from it after the assassination. Thank you. Um, can we go over here, please, in the front, second row? Uh, Richard Cotton from the Iraq-Britain Business Council. Um, what about economic consequences for Iraq of, um, of a withdrawal from America and, I guess, its Western allies? Um, obviously, Siemens and GE are pretty much solely rebuilding the electrical um, sort of industry. Um, same with water. Um, and I'm not sure the sub possible substituting Chinese-Russian um, business model of doing and sort of work overseas is, um, is going to be attractive to the Iraqi people? Yeah, it, it's a great question, and I think it has three answers. The, the first is the immediate response of the U.S. So we know that visa waivers, as I mentioned, are coming up in February. If the visa waivers are constrained, if they're played with, and we've already seen that where the Iraqi banks 
recognizing, overtly stating that if, if the, the visa waivers change in February, then they won't process the payments um, uh, for Iranian gas. That will kill, I think, it, it, the, the, I have the percentages here, if I can find them while I'm talking, that will kill the production of Iraqi electricity. I think it's 40% of my memory is based on that. That's the first thing. The second thing is then the removal of US forces. The US forces, the, the numbers are very low, uh, but it is their symbolic effect, I think, and the fact that jittery international investors, especially in the hydrocarbons uh, business, worry about, worry about that. I mean, the Chinese are there, as you know more than I, but they're there as joint partners supplying uh, the labor for Western technology. So yes, I, I think a, a headlong race for the door will undoubtedly challenge investor confidence. Um, but one assumes, especially for the Siemens and G electricity uh, contracts, the, the, the rewards are so huge, uh, and we've been here before. I mean, let's, not, let's put this in historical perspective. Under the Obama administration, with maximum Iranian pressure, all US troops left. I mean, it, it, it was under uh, Prime Minister Maliki's uh, reign and rule, as it were. So um, the, the knock-on offense led to the fall of Mosul in 2014, but not directly. Uh, but I think big businesses, multinational companies have been here before and have operated successfully and largely without greater problem than there already is when the US went home before. So if the US troops do go, if relations sour, there will be jitters. But international investors, because if the if price is right, will come back. The, the really worrying immediacy of the US sanctions waivers will be hugely destabilizing at the beginning of an Iraqi summer. Thank you. Um, at the back, please, gentlemen, in the blazer. Thank you. Um, my question is to Professor Porter. Um, considering that Trump, the Trump administration has quietly given the Saudis... Can you please Sorry. speak up a little Yeah, is that better? Thank you. Okay. Considering the Trump administration has very quietly given the Saudis nuclear technology, um, do you see it in the, the Iranians' national interest now to even continue to pursue um, the JCPOA? I think, in the sense that I think it's probably in their interest to have nuclear latency, uh, the, the capacity to sprint. I, I don't. I, I'm not an authority on their actual inner you know, councils about the bomb. I'm not sure they've ever, ever actually even decided to build a bomb, and there are great theological objections to building a bomb. But the capacity to build one. I also understand from um, earlier research that there is a doctrine of expediency where under an extremist these things can be justified. But uh, your, your question is a very good one. If, if Saudi Arabia started acquiring latency, would it be, really be in its own interest? I would actually argue on balance if I were an Iranian hardliner, yes it would. It would be better to have a nuclear deterrent uh, that is survivable even if Saudi Arabia starts moving on. My understanding is Saudi Arabia is much further away from that. As I understand it, the, the, more, the more plausible scenario for, an, for a Saudi proliferation would not be so much an indigenous nuclear force, but a Pakistani-supplied or a Pakistani presence um, with, with nuclear platforms in Saudi Arabia. But if you have a small arsenal that is survivable, then if you believe that that's 
potent enough to deter attacks, and that should remain potent enough to deter attacks, even if Saudi Arabia joins that club. Uh, but I'm not sure they're there yet. I think there is an ambiguity about this, and, and for the very reason, one of the reasons you raise in your question, um, prefer to have the ability to build the bomb than to necessarily decide to build the bomb. I don't know whether that tallies with what you guys know. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. Um, the Iranians have made the calculation that it is in their interest to pursue the JCPOA and its implementation um, because of the benefits that that gets them. Uh, on the one hand, the supposed economic benefits, although they haven't gotten those, but also the political benefits. Because keep in mind that right now we're in a world where, uh, maybe the last six months notwithstanding, where Iran is the reasonable actor versus America, which looks unreasonable. Um, this has never happened in the history of the Islamic Republic before. And, uh, and that is a huge win for the elite in the Islamic Republic. And that's all thanks to the JCPOA and their implementation of it. And there's a real sense in Iran of nuclear fatigue, um, which is what I was alluding to yeah. earlier. Yeah. Iranians, they're done with this issue. They can't believe they've been talking about this for the last 30 years. Um, it hasn't, it's been useful to them because it's been a useful bargaining chip. There's no doubt about that. But it hasn't really brought them that many advantages. And they thought they were done with it. Um, so they have no desire to go back to a situation where there is no JCPOA and they're making nuclear threats like we're going to leave the NPT, we're going to cut off access to the IEA inspectors. It's not really what they want to do. Um, it's, they may be forced to do it, but, uh, but I definitely don't think it's, it's what they want and they know that it's not in their interest to do that. I, I imagine that the assassination of Soleimani did not necessarily hurt the case for acquiring the bomb one day. Can we get one quick question, please, over there? Please. Have to wrap up. Uh, following on from what Danny was saying um, about uh, the, G the nuclear option, has the, in the opinion of the panel, has Iran's expansionist policies in the region been a net benefit to its own progression, or has it been a negative one? Thanks. Well, I, th I think it's a great question, but I would reframe it. I don't think we should talk about it in terms of Iran's expansionist policies in the region. I think we should be talking about a Cold War in the region in which Iran feels very much on the defensive as much as on the offensive. This is not just empire building for the kick of it. It's empire building out of a sense of defensive imperialism because there is a Saudi bloc with increasingly close relationship with Israel, with a close relationship with the United States that looks to be encircling it. And one of my sort of dislikes about this sort of hollow moralism about saying what a bad guy Soleimani is and what a terrible murderous actor he is, is that this is talking about him as though he's not the instrument of a state and as though that state is not part of a group of predatory states which are very dangerous to each other and reactively um, competing for security in an, an incredibly dangerous environment. And if we don't have some understanding of the dilemma that puts those states in, um, then what we end up with is this rather kind of unreflective, well, he's, at least he's a bad guy, we've killed him. Um, would Iran be m more secure if it hadn't competed with Saudi Arabia and, and Israel and America and let them run the table? I suspect not. I, I suspect not. I think that that, that that could be the danger of predation as opposed to the danger of uh, over-aggression. I mean, these are, these are fine lines. Iran could still get in a lot of trouble with this. 
but uh, it's like it's it, the proposition is not should Iran have been expansionist is should Iran have competed against its enemies that's I think the real question thank you very much I'd like to thank our speakers for this stimulating and thought-provoking panel discussion audience please join me in a round of applause thank you very much And I'd like to inform you that the next Middle East Centre event will be this Thursday, 30th of January, where we'll be joined by Professor Abdul Razak Tikriti talking about Palestine and the politics of decolonization. Um, details can be found on the Middle East Centre website. You're all very warmly invited. Thanks again, speakers and audience, and have a good evening. Thank you. Okay, thank you.